Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Jessica Smalley, Mark Boris's producer, and this is Straight Talk. Mark and I wanted to highlight moments of resilience from... 2022's guess. Resilience is a muscle that needs to be constantly exercised. So when I listen to these moments, I know there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Always. So let's kick it off with Ned Brockman, who ran across Australia from Perth to Bondi. At what point do you think was your lowest point? Can you sort of remember where you were? There was a few, there was a few days. Um, the first one was probably the injured injury on my shin on day 11. Um, that was pretty wild, but I knew I just had to find a way. It wasn't super low. It was just like, oh, this is going to make this run so much harder. Um, we dealt with that. There was uh, tenosynovitis in my shin, which is basically a six, six week injury. You got to immobilize it, put it in a boot. We got injections and I said, well, we're going to find a way to get this done because I need to get this run done. Painkillers. Yeah, it was a, it's a, yeah, just a an, steroidal anti, um, yeah, yeah anti-inflammatory yeah, injection. Yeah, yeah. And then around, usually that sheath around your tendon can get, um, like, uh, what's it called when you're infected and that can like become serious. So we got very lucky that it didn't become infected inside. We got a dictus band, which basically ties around your ankle, goes in between your shoelaces and it allows your foot to lift up and down. Cause I had no control over my foot because the amount of swelling. And I was in that much pain. Like it was pretty severe. And then the next day we drove 14 hours back and started running again, got 700K out that week. So stuck to the 100K a day. So that was pretty low, but I was glad I got through that and I could continue to keep running. I, um, there was a day out, it was probably just before Mildura. And like the hardest part for me was probably every morning because I'd wake up and go, oh, fuck me, I've got to run another 100K. Like <laughs> whether, whether I got 100K out that day or not, it was still like you're, you're going to get put every bit of energy you can into getting 100K done. So I'd hop in this car and we'd, we'd like my girlfriend or my physio photographer, he'd drive me out to the spot we marked the night before. And it would just be, I'd be dreading it. The first 10 days, I didn't put any music on in the car. I didn't do anything. But from then on, I'd just blast ACDC or blast like something just to get me, get me up and, and get going. I get to the mark and one morning I've hopped out. I didn't notice what the, who was driving, what they were doing. And I've hopped out of the car. And for the first time I had a tailwind. I had 35 days or so of headwinds and I've had a tailwind. I went, oh, you fucking beauty. And I started, yeah. Totally. And um, because that affects you as well. When you're 70 kilos, road trains, you, everything else sucks. If you can get a tailwind, mate, it's like, it's gold. And then everyone was quiet. 
And I said, what's like, oh, fuck, what's everyone doing? They go, you're running that way. And I had to turn around <laughs> and the headwind. And that was a fucking low morning. I, I, I just remember crying for about an hour because I was like, you fuck with it. You've got to run back this way. Didn't know. Didn't know that was the way. But that was that was one of the harder um, harder mornings, definitely. I guess the, the run took you through the Nola ball, right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, only recently I had to go, I had to go into inside the middle of Australia and uh, couldn't believe how fucking hot and dry it is. Mm. Was that what you were experiencing? I knew it'd be, there'd be nothing. I knew, I knew there'd be no trees, no, like, I knew it'd be vast, no hospital, no access to healthcare, no supermarkets. I knew all that shit, but I didn't know the effect the road trains would have on me. I didn't know the effect the wind would have and then the road kill. Those three things were pretty gnarly. Yeah. The, Road trains, they're all 120 ton minimum when they're fully loaded. They're like 50 Scary. meters long. Yeah. And majority knew who I was by the Nullarbor, say. Um, but some decided they'd want to run me off the road or they got the shits. They said, you know. And so I'd cop the wind of this 120 ton vehicle. It'd, it'd pull me in. Like the 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 draft of that um, truck's wind was fucking wild. And then every time one was coming up, I'd have to brace, hold my hat because my hat would fall off, fly 40 meters behind me. Um, yeah, and then, like, the wind, like, I've never thought there would be so much, like, you know, you'd have no cover. So one day I had to run behind mum and dad's van probably a foot and any t- any further than the foot behind, I would be in the wind draft. So I had to, like, dad had to drive at 10K an hour in the truck, in the uh, motorhome, and I'd be like, ah, because the wind would affect his thing. So I'm, like, trying to get this rhythm is just impossible. And, but, and, and does it blow dust into you? Yeah. Fuck yeah. And I, Red dust. I actually had... um. In my ears, I thought, like, because I was starting to get a bit deaf when I finished the run. I'm like, what's going on? It's because I was wearing AirPods all day, but I was, there was so much dust. And I just kept jamming dust in and in. And I had this, this massive buildup, stuff like that. And like, I was, had all this phlegm in my throat. So I was vomiting every second hour, but just because of the dust. It's crazy. In terms of roadkill, I mean, you underplayed a little bit, but I guess there's dead kangaroos and dead wombats and dead shit, like fucking stuff everywhere. Dead camels. Dead- and what does that do to you? Yeah, for a good minute, when you see it, you smell it pretty well because of the winds. Yeah. And then it stays with you till a minute after running past it. So for every thing you see, you've probably got a, a minute and a half to two minutes of that smell. And so all day, there's dead road, like trucks don't stop for kangaroos. Yeah, yeah. There's just roadkill all day. And so it's um, nauseating. It makes you feel nauseous. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't get it out once yeah. you once you smell that. And then it makes you want to not want to eat. And then you have that issue with the calories in. And yeah, it's pretty wild. So like- with, with, there's, there's just like, so it's not just running a hundred K a day out there. Yeah. Like you, you're not just going around Centennial having a bit of water. And then even my like crew, they had to drive 5K and I'd be, I wouldn't know where they were because some of these rolling hills, I'd go over the rolling hill and they, and the no service. So you can't reach out to them. You just hope that they're going to be over this next hill. And it's like, there's like five or six different challenges in the one big challenge, which was a head fuck every day. Yeah. Well, I was going to say to you, how the hell do you sort that shit out? Like, I mean, did, did at night, you're not sleeping properly. So, no. I mean, you don't have time to clear all this shit and, and no. dream about it and stuff like that. So, you know, do the usual stuff the way we subconsciously resolve things. How did you do it? Like, did you talk to your mum, your dad, your girlfriend? I remember, or did you just, you just say, oh, fuck it, I'm going to do it? What was the driver? How the fuck did you sort it? In, in terms of how the hell I kept going, I, self preservation for me has like complete disregard for my body. I've, I've, I, when I say I'm going to do something like this, it's like, no worries. So when I was was injured, it was like, it's all good. Let's just find a way. This is always going to happen. And I I just, people have done this stuff and I'm like, I want to, I want to do it. I want to be able to go and say, I've run across the country and you know, I'm the second fastest person to ever run across it. 
um, the bloke who has is the fastest to ever run across it was has been running for thirty plus years. You know, he's been doing that stuff. So, I guess the self belief that I can do something like that just is so deep in me. Um, and yeah, I guess like the people as well. Like I said in the podcast before with you, how people saying you can't that's also massive driver for me. And yeah, a culmination of all those things just is enough for me to keep going. This is Runway CEO Alex Favola. Earlier this year, we brought her on to promote her book, Silver Linings, and she also happens to be partner with Brendan Favola. Alex has been through hell and back, and yet she still sees things in a positive light, no matter what. The day that Lonnie passed, um, so the, the, the actual day he died, I hemorrhaged on the same day, which was so bizarre, but that's that's what happened. I hemorrhaged up and it had been four weeks since the birth. Or four you you hemorrhaged through uterus or something like that. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it was from the birth. Yeah, so yeah. they found out there'd been retained placenta um, and that's what had caused the hemorrhage. So I was rushed to hospital and then when I got to the hospital, um, they basically established that, yep, that was what was wrong and they had to schedule a surgery um, to remove the retained placenta and then that surgery went very wrong. And um, they ended up perforating my uterus, my bowel, and then I ended up very, very sick and nearly died. So then I went through a process of that, having to recover from that. And so it was it was a really terrible time. I mean, and at the time when, when I was going through um, the process after the surgery and I knew something was wrong, the, the doctor's obviously just assumed it was grief because of what it was the same yeah. day. So they were thinking this girl's in shock. This girl's, you know, got a lot going on. And I knew, I'm like, I knew something was wrong. And I said to my mom, like, no, something else is wrong. This isn't right. I don't feel right. So that was really terrifying because no one would believe me. So I went, I was left for hours and hours bleeding internally and I had toxemia and I, I was about to go septic. Um, and yeah, if left any longer, I probably wouldn't have survived. So that in itself is so terrifying because I was sitting there at first thinking, you know, having just lost Lonnie, I don't want to be here. That was your first initial thought. I can't live without him. I can't do this. I can't bear being in this world without him. But very, very quickly, you know, my survival instinct kicked in because when I was faced with the reality of my own mortality, I very quickly realized, no, no, I I need to be here because the biggest fear was leaving my baby with nobody. So you know, that in itself was a silver lining, dare I say. It sounds terrible and I would never want to go through that again, but it's what made me realise really quickly that I needed to be here and I wanted to be here for my baby. So, Do you think in those times um, your daughter being like just born um, collects some sort of, some of the grief from you? Like uh, your mom, your, she's not seeing it. She does obviously doesn't, not aware of what's going on. But at the same time, do you think there is some collection of something or other from the mum to the daughter? Does your daughter have any recollection of any of this or not a recollection, but like have a sense of this sort of stuff, what happened? Do you think there's, and is it, has it endured within her? Um, or did you start look, keep I, making up for it? I mean, because that's that's something might be an issue too. Like, have have you felt guilty about any of that? I think. Look, I hope it hasn't. And I think I did everything I could to ensure she had a really happy childhood. And and part of that was, you know, not disclosing the entire details of her father's death. So she always knew about Lonnie. She knew he was her dad, and she knew that from 
you know, being very, very little, that he was in heaven. So she fully understood that Brendan was not her biological father, um, but I did protect her from um, all of the details because I didn't want her childhood to, um, I just didn't want her having those thoughts. I didn't want her thinking about it. I didn't want her picturing it. I just didn't want her to to suffer that. So I think, you know, all in all, she had a very happy childhood. And um, because I met Brendan and and we became a family, she never had that feeling of not having a dad because he was her dad from for as long as she, she can't remember life without him. So I don't think so. And I think she was so little at the time because she was a newborn baby. She, you know, they sleep and they eat and they sleep and they eat. So yeah. she wasn't really affected um, certainly not as a baby did she, was she showing any, you know, signs of being upset or distressed. She just was a very peaceful, happy baby and, um, yeah, so I hope not. I hope and, and, but when she reads or she, you put out a book like this, how old is she now? She's 22. So do you have to go and say, listen, yeah, I'm going to write this book. I've written this book. It's going to get published and going yeah. to talk about it. Um do you sort of seek consent or permission or what do she, you do? Well, she wanted, this is, so this is, a, I guess, another reason or a motivation for writing the book was because there was always questions, well, where's her real dad? You know, why, and to her, why are you lying? Why don't you ever talk about your real dad? And the thing was she never spoke about it because it was at that time my story, I hadn't told anybody yet. So there was, um, that was probably one of the main reasons is so that she can talk about it and she can be open about it because it was something we didn't discuss for a long time. We kept private as a family for the sake of all of my kids, not just Mia. Um, whereas now she's an adult and she, she, I disclosed the details to her as she grew up slowly right. over a period of time. So nothing was ever a shock. Everything in that book, Mia already knows. And um, But it's public now. Yeah, it's public. That's right. How does she feel about that? Um, well, as I said, she, I think she wanted it to be out there so that there wasn't the secrecy or, you know, any, you know, hiding or there's nothing. No mystery. There's no mystery. There's no reason for her to feel like she can't talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been quite freeing and. Like, more liberating. Yeah, As I opposed think so. to a problem. Oh, yeah, for sure. You weren't yeah. trying to solve a problem. It's just you just feel liberated as a result of unburdening yourself with it in a public sense. Yeah, I think it, it was about explaining a lot about our family and and why why we there was no mention of me as biological father. And, um, yeah, it's just it's putting it all out there and it, making people perhaps have a better understanding of why and how and, you know, what's what. Um, and for me, I'd, I'd always... Um, decided from a very from a very early stage I decided I was going to write about what I went through and the reason I decided that so long ago was because at the time when I was in the absolute depths of the grief um all I had wanted is for somebody to have said to me it's going to get better it does get better there is hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, back then there was no connecting with people on social media. So it felt really, really isolating. I felt like I was the only person that was feeling that way. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so I decided that I was going to write about my experience and hopefully, you know, people that are going through something similar will will read it and, and have that same hope, you know, that, you, you can get through it. It is an unbearable journey, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, let's now hear something from Russell Manser. He is a former convicted criminal who is now committed to bringing a voice to abuse survivors. I um, I was sitting in my cell one night and I was, I was watching the seven thirty ABC seven thirty report and I seen that they were going after Brian Houston from Hillsong and I seen that they were going the Royal Commission Institution responses to child sexual abuse were going after George Pell and I thought. These people are a fair income. And, um, and I just thought, you know what, well, I'm just, cause I just knew it was, I just knew it was the underlying. I just, when I got that at suicidal thoughts, I just got back to that, to the courts. That was like I peeled the onion back to until it couldn't be peeled back anymore, so to speak. And, uh, there was nothing left. And I was, and, and that's what it was. It was just sitting there and it was this rotten black hole of a thing as they abuse. It was all just, it's like a pea that was just turned into a whole heap of things. And that was what I had to deal with. And, um, and I just knew it. I acknowledged that that was the problem. But it's, it's like being trapped in a maze or without, you know, a sort of plan to get out of there. I, I acknowledged it, but I didn't have the plan to get out of there and I yeah. needed a plan. So what I'd done was um, I went, I jumped on the phone. I just, I, I can remember it as plain as day. It was in January 2014. So I went and jumped on. So a, you were in jail at the yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, I was yep. in jail. I was in jail in Brisbane. And um, in Bogger Road. No, no, it's called Arthur Gorey. Bogger Road's been closed since 1986. Serious? Yeah, I didn't know you're that. out of date with oh, the jails. No, That's a good thing, though. <laughs> that is a good thing. Yeah. But um, I, I got my friend to get me, I said, can you get me the Royal Commission's address? And um, they said, yeah. And uh, I rang back an hour later to give me the address. And I just wrote a one page, full cap paper of what had happened to me. And like anything, I, I didn't have a lot of faith. I didn't have a lot of faith in the, in the in system, that, in the system, so to speak. I didn't, especially anything to do with the government. You thought no one's going to read this. Yeah, and this will just get put in the shredder and yeah, or yeah. put on someone's desk. Well, I said, but it might be a little bit cathartic for me to sort of to do that and put it out and just give it away or burn it or whatever. You but know. What did you say in that? Like- I just I just outlined. I said my name's Russell Man. So I said, you know, I went through. Um, I said I was at the notorious Derek Boys home. I also was at another part of my story is that at 16 years old, I was sent to Long Bay Prison as a 16-year-old and I was sexually abused in both these places. And uh, I was, I don't, I don't even think I filled the whole page. And then um, and I just, and then um, so I, I posted it. And then in prison, when you get called for a legal visit, two things, never ever, not much ever good comes of that. It's normally the police turning up to charge you with something. So a lot of people turn up there and that you stand up there like a, I don't know, a deer in the headlights, so to speak. And you go, who is it? And as the police, I don't want to tell them to call my lawyer and you run out of there. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but in this case, they said it's the Royal Commission. And that, and oh, really? They can't yeah. see it. No, they, by, by video conference. Right. And, um, I remember the girl's, the woman's name, her name was Michelle Burford. And I, um, 
So anyway, I went and she goes, Russell, firstly, we want, we want you to tell you something. Before you even start, we want to tell you we believe you. And I went and like, I was a bit, I said, believe me, what? And they said, what happened to you? And they said, we've even got a bit of uh, information that backs up what you say. So other people that were in my situation that obviously dropped my name as someone that was being there. And I said, yeah. And then, um, and I had this like 45 minute conference with them and I just was so at ease. It was, and I was a bit emotional. I was a bit emotional and, um, and, um, but at the end of it, they said, we've got a trauma counselor, a counselor. I was a little pommy woman. Um, and I ended up doing counseling with her for five years. Never met her, never met her face to face, but spoke to her on a regular basis for, um, um. I can see he's getting there now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm sweet. Yeah, I've done this a thousand times now. Like I tell it, but it it still, it still has the same effect to me. It still has. um, It is because you know. um, Is it the memory of what happened to you? Is it the injustice of what you feel, or is it having to talk to someone that affects you the most? uh, It's not the injustice because I think in a lot of ways. I'm creating my own justice by talking about it. I think I like I might not have got justice at the time. Unfortunately, the perpetrators in my case are long gone. But um, um, but um, are long gone. But I don't know. I, I just like I, I was. I was a very, very. It's not so much these days, but it was a very, very painful part of my life, and I, I carried a lot of pain with me for a long time that I didn't deserve to carry. You know, I didn't deserve to carry. No one deserves to carry, do they? No. Especially if you're a a young man. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're an older man either, but as a young man. Oh, mate. And you know what? Because, and then you sit there and watch news and you see some perpetrator get three or four months or a slap or a suspended sentence or whatever. And, and, mate, I'd be raging sometimes. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, that hasn't changed. But I'd like to think that I'll be part of a system that can change all that where they get what they deserve. All-round entertainer M. Rushiono has got to be my favourite. Recently, she was diagnosed with adult ADHD, which has changed her whole life. The pandemic for me, as someone who is prolific, everything stopped, Mark. Like, yeah. this bit, I wore busy as a badge of honour. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I've got all these things going on. And then I realised I'd built this kind of house of cards of coping techniques to give my ADHD brain stuff to do, you know, I'm making this, I'm making that. So I was always stimulated. Busy, busy, busy. Mm. Then that all fell away and I was struggling to do really basic things like, you know, just think about what we're going to have for dinner and answer emails and just function as a normal human that isn't busy all the time. And I'm like, I'm doing a quarter of the stuff I was doing before this. Why can't I get out of bed? What the fuck is wrong with me? So I went to my GP and he's like, well, maybe your iron levels are bad. Maybe you're starting early menopause. And he'd seen some articles about the rise in ADHD diagnosis. Like he'd seen some medical journals. And this guy also delivered me. He pulled me from my mother. He's known me my whole life. And he's like 72. And he said, you know, you could fit the profile of ADHD because he's known me my whole life. And he said, so he wrote me a referral. I went to see a neural psychologist and I had to do three sessions with them. And they ask you questions about your report cards as a kid, what people say about you, you know, your personality type. Then they hooked me up to a test where they put electrodes on my skull and they made me sit still for five minutes and monitored my brain activity. They monitor your your brain waves, particularly your delta waves. Yes. And um, my brain was interesting. Um, Do they give you a show to watch? 
No, they didn't give me. I just got the report. Like right. I didn't. And then I had to also sit in front of a test where I had to press a button every time a white ball appeared. And so after about 30 seconds, I started anticipating the white ball. Then I got distracted because the lady doing the test looked like Alanis Morissette. So I started thinking about Alanis <laughs> Morissette, forgot to press the button. Um, and they came back and I did so well on that test. Like I was so ADHD. I was minus seven. And I think the normal was like zero, like zero is normal. Minus 10 is the worst. I was minus seven. Yeah. So I got the diagnosis and um, this was during the pandemic. It was like a Zoom diagnosis. This ain't cool. It was like, I was just like, because honestly, before this, like everyone, I just thought, oh, ADHD is the troublesome kid in class. Yeah, he's yeah. a boy and has red cordial and he's a shit and everyone wants him to go away, right? And then I'm like, oh, right, okay. So then I Googled it and started realising that, this is chronically underdiagnosed in women because there is a symptom recognition bias because of those little boys. Um, little girls get missed because they don't cause trouble in class. They're quite the opposite. They're, they're quiet. They're not saying anything. They're disengaged. So teachers aren't going to pick up on it because they're not giving them any hassle, right? So the first study on women wasn't done until 1997. The first study involving women with ADHD wasn't published until 2001. So there was very little going on for us, very little studies. We've just changed the guidelines now in in Australia in how we're diagnosing and looking for symptoms, especially in young women. So there's a whole generation of women my age who are getting diagnosed now, oftentimes because their kids are being diagnosed and they're seeing themselves in the diagnostic process and going, oh, shit, okay, yep, that was me at school, that was me at school, and um yeah, for, for me, it was a huge light bulb. And initially I felt, oh, okay, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a broken person. I'm not a crazy person. There's a reason. I have a reason. I exist and there is a reason. And then grief, just unimaginable sadness. You, you felt it? Yeah. I mean, still now, like I'm still sad about it. Um, but why? Because... From as long as I can remember, I felt like an alien. Absurdity. You mean lost years, years just ten-year-old M, yeah. yeah. And like before you're ten, kids with ADHD um, get twenty thousand more negative messages than neurotypical kids about themselves. You give them to yourself, or no, other, others give them to you. Teachers try harder. Why are you being lazy? You're disorganized. That's not good enough. Be quiet. Uh, you're wrong. Aberrant. Correct. Twenty thousand more before you're ten. That's a lot. And that starts to shape your self-esteem and the core beliefs about yourself. Yeah, or your neurological story. Correct. Yeah. Because I'm different. We're trying to exist in a system that's set up for neurotypicals and set up by, you know, straight white blokes how many hundreds of years ago. Mm. That system is going to, we're going to fail. And and I did. And so you go back and think of all the times where it was, in fact, your brain wiring and not you as a human that you have spent 40 years building shame around that particular personality quirk you have. So it was a lot of grief, which, you know, I started therapy pretty much straight away and I still do it. Every what does therapy look like? Therapies. Is it cognitive stuff, is it? Yeah, it's retraining the way you think about yourself. It's it's. Oh, but it's not trying to teach you to think more like the... No, definitely. It's not conversion the, therapy. The, yeah, that's, it's not trying <laughs> no, to get no, you to become No, no, it's typical. more like, oh, if I didn't complete something or I reacted in a certain way, it's okay. It's because of this, not mm. because you're deficient. So it's just understanding your process. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and reframing. And just, how to get the best out of your process. Yeah, reframing a lot of situations in my life that I thought, you know, I, I really just fucked it. And finally, Danny Abdullah, a man I am in awe of 
who continues to protect his family and fight for love and forgiveness despite losing his three children and niece to a drunk driving incident in 2020. Can you explain to me what grief is like? Yeah. Grief, I don't know if I can say it this way. Grief is a, is a prick of a person that comes unannounced. You hate him, but you need him. Because the closest I feel to my kids is when I'm crying. That's the new form of love. How does it come about? Does it just hit you all of a sudden? Like You'll hear a song, it'll hit you. Yeah. You wake up one morning, it comes. I think I said it to a friend of mine, you and, you and your son, you'll have energy that you pass bang to each other mm. from the day he was born. This energy is called love. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And next minute they disappear. That energy actually reverses and hits you straight in the gut and it becomes grief because it's unexpressed love. That's probably a way I can express that because they're no longer there anymore. So that energy that I used to give to my son, Anthony, Angelina and Sienna and my daughters, Angelina and Sienna, it's no longer there. It actually, it's like a reverse and I have some, like a, like a ball in my stomach that I can't express and, and it becomes grief. And then how do you... How do you reconcile grief with forgiveness? Like how do the two work together? How do they work together? I think I think it would have been a lot harder if I didn't forgive and I had to for the greater good. What's the greater good? Liana, Alex and Michael, Layla, my wife and kids. I've lost half my household. If I have an unforgiving heart, I'll lose all of it because I would have went nuts and yeah. chased it and gone for him and all my life I would have had an obsession about how can I get this guy back and and I I wouldn't have been able to thought how can I move forward. My wife and I, you know, we've got a newborn, six weeks old. Yeah, and we're moving in the right direction. We're coming out of that valley of of grief together. Is this a new chapter? It is a new chapter. We're very happy. Uh, We've got purpose. You see the kids coming together. And, you know, I took Leon out for dinner that about – Two nights after the baby was born and I sat with her. She's now 12, turning 13. I said, Liana, what did you learn? You know, it's been two years now. She says, Dad, I learned from you and mum never to give up. Because you know what? We had a miscarriage. Between. Between. Yeah. And we still didn't give up. We had another child. And she says, you know, mum, she really inspires me. I said, Liana, life is going to be tough, sweetie. But you just don't sit in the same spot. You've got to learn to move forward. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you check out the full episodes from the list. This show is a success because of you. You know that. So please let Mark know what you want to hear more of in 2023 by emailing support at mentor.com.au. That's all in the show notes. Talk to you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 